shall endeavour to bring together, not collecting mere useless pieces of learning, but adducing what may make his the subject's disposition and habit of mind understood. He set about his task with characteristic thoroughness. Roman histories abounded in plenty, autobiographies of the participants in major events too, some oral traditions handed down through generations possibly as well, particulars faithfully preserved in the memories of men. He even felt the need to learn Latin. I had no leisure to exercise myself in the Roman language on account of public business and of those who came to be instructed by me in philosophy. It was very late and in the decline of my age before I applied myself to the reading of Latin authors. It was not so much by the knowledge of words that I came to the understanding of things, as by my experience of things I was enabled to follow the meaning of words. Plutarch is saying modestly that his understanding of the Roman tongue was more by instinct than industry. A working knowledge of Latin, however, gave him the opportunity to read some Roman histories in their original language. Plutarch begins his sequence of Roman lies with the very founding of Rome itself in the 8th century BC. Its early history was shrouded in myth, with the legend of Romulus, who was believed to be descended from the great Aeneas. By tradition, after Romulus, Rome was ruled by six kings, of whom Plutarch examines only Numa Pompilius, whose reign was a long and peaceful one during which he instituted many religious rites and added January and February to the existing ten-month calendar. The succeeding regal period was marked by much warfare, during which the city of Rome enlarged its territory. But by 510 BC the kings had been expelled and an aristocratic republic established. The king was replaced by two magistrates elected annually, praetors later called consuls, who had the supreme power to command, but were advised by a senate made up of members of the aristocratic families. For the next two centuries there was a struggle between the two classes of Roman citizen, the elite patricians and the masses plebeians, for political power within the republic, while tribes from surrounding areas ravaged Roman territory. It is to this period, 493 BC, when the Volsci, a hill tribe of the Apennines, attacked Rome from the east, that Plutarch turns to study Coriolanus, who stands on the edge of legend, yet embodies the patrician arrogance and immovable pride that was so much a part of the aristocratic Romans' makeup. The internal struggle between the classes led to the plebeians creating their own magistrates, tribunes, and aediles and assembly, known as Concilium Plebes. These differences were not resolved until 287 BC, when the patricians made major concessions to the plebeians, recognizing their assembly, and admitting them to offices both religious and temporal, formerly only held by patricians. In 390 BC, Rome was sacked by the invading Gauls, Celtic tribes who were subdued by Camillus, another of Plutarch's subjects, who was celebrated as the saviour and second founder of Rome. In the 4th century BC, Rome began to pursue a policy of expansion towards the rest of Italy and its neighbours. 
This continued period of aggression led to the emergence of individuals in the Roman army who were prepared to pursue their own destinies at the expense of the Republic. It is the inevitable social and political struggle that this brings about that fascinates Plutarch, the dominance of a people by one man, and he concentrates on the richest period of Rome's history, the last century B.C. A struggle for power between two generals, Marius and Sulla, led to the outbreak of civil war in 88 B.C. Sulla's victory led to his establishment as dictator in 82 B.C. His brief reign was marked by vicious cruelty against those who had opposed him. His protégé, Pompey, continued to rule with military might, mainly for his own aggrandizement, and the tenor of the times produced other ambitious men who strove to fulfill their own ends at the expense of the dwindling republic. Plutarch, in his lives, seeks to unravel their complex personalities, their motivations, their contradictions, their achievements and failures. They are the titans of Rome's history. Men like Pompey the Great and his rival Julius Caesar, Mark Antony and the conspirator Brutus. The shifting and uncertain politics of the era also inspired a golden age of oratory from Cicero and his contemporary Cato the Younger. Rome's ongoing civil conflict was perpetuated by Antony and Octavian, Julius Caesar's designated heir, but the defeat of Antony at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC and his death a year later marked the end of an era for Rome and the end of republican ideals. The clear-sighted Octavian Caesar, now sole master of Rome and all her territories, became the first Roman emperor in 27 BC under the name of Augustus. His reign ushered in a period of peace and prosperity for Rome. Marcius Coriolanus, late 5th century BC. He is one of the great legendary figures of Rome, a patrician and a general who acquired his name after defeating and capturing the Volscian town of Corioli in 493 BC. Plutarch's source for this legendary story was Dionysius of Halicarnassus. Caius Marcius, of whom I now write, being left an orphan and brought up under the widowhood of his mother, has shown us by experience that although the early loss of a father may be attended with other disadvantages, yet it can hinder none from being either virtuous or eminent in the world, and that it is no obstacle to true goodness and excellence. However bad men may be pleased to lay the blame of their corruptions upon that misfortune and the neglect of them in their minority. Nor is he less an evidence to the truth of their opinion, who conceive that a generous and worthy nature, without proper discipline, like a rich soil without culture, is apt with its better fruits to produce also much that is bad and faulty. 
while the force and vigor of his soul and a persevering constancy in all he undertook led him successfully into many noble achievements, yet on the other side also, by indulging the vehemence of his passion, and through all obstinate reluctance to yield or accommodate his humors and sentiments to those of people about him, he rendered himself incapable of acting and associating with others. Those who saw with admiration how proof his nature was against all the softnesses of pleasure, the hardships of service, and the allurements of gain, while allowing to that universal firmness of his the respective names of temperance, fortitude, and justice, yet in the life of the citizen and the statesman could not choose but be disgusted at the severity and ruggedness of his deportment, and with his overbearing, haughty, and imperious temper. Those were times at Rome in which the kind of worth was most esteemed which displayed itself in military achievements. Marcius, having a more passionate inclination than any of that age for feats of war, began at once from his very childhood to handle arms. He so exercised and inured his body to all sorts of activity and encounter, that besides the likeness of a racer, he had awaiting close seizures and wrestlings with an enemy, from which it was hard for any to disengage himself. The first time he went out to the wars, being yet a stripling, was when Tarquinius Superbus, who had been king of Rome and was afterwards expelled, after many unsuccessful attempts, now entered upon his last effort, and proceeded to hazard all, as it were, upon a single throw. A great number of the Latins and other people of Italy joined their forces, and were marching with him toward the city to procure his restoration. The armies met and engaged in a decisive battle, in the vicissitudes of which Marcius,